0: I don't know where I'm from.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 7 of Pith and Moments, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach here in New York City, and I am here with my close friend and former roommate from graduate school, Park Fetch. What's going on, Park? How are you doing?
0: Hey, I'm good.
1: How are you? How are you? I'm fantastic. It's a little hot here in New York, uh, but should be cooling down soon, and we're coming uh, towards the early days of fall. Um, so that's great. So first off, why don't you tell the listeners just a bit more about yourself so they know why you're such an expert on Shakespeare?
0: <laughs> uh, well, uh, as you said, we were at the University of Houston's professional training actor program together. I got my MFA in acting from there, um, worked with one of the best text coaches in the country who is also on uh, your podcast, Miss Sarah Becker. Um, yeah, uh, I have my bachelor's from the Colorado Macy University in music theater. Um, I'm working right now at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival uh, doing comedy of airs, playing Antiphilus of Ephesus. Um, and this is my second go at it, which is really fun. Um, now, you yeah, played, that,
1: you've played both Antiphili, correct? I sure have.
0: So yeah. which one are you playing presently again? Um, Antiphilus of Ephesus, um, who has the very fun summation speech... Uh, in the latter part of the play. Cool. Well, I guess
1: uh, then we may as well just dive right on into the material, right? So we're here to talk about Comedy of Errors today, and Park, just for fun, is going to give us a quick summary of the play because he he's more uh, experienced with it than I am. So, Park, why don't you let us
0: know what happens in this great play? So, um... Comedy Bears is about two sets of twins that get separated at, uh, f- by, by like a shipwreck. So, you know, Aegean takes one set of twins, uh, floating away, and his wife, Amelia, has another set of twins, and he thinks they're picked up by fishermen of Corinth, but they're not, uh, they're actually kind of like pirate sort of dudes, and, uh, <laughs> so, um, these twins were raised separately, um, but uh, Antipolis of Syracuse and Dromio of Syracuse become kind of interested about their missing pieces because they have heard all the stories and stuff like that. So they go searching for it. Land in, in Ephesus, where it's now a law, for whatever reason, that anyone from Syracuse is put to death if they're caught. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> So they come, and then Aegean is like searching after them because they essentially they like ran away from home. Aegean comes, and the duke's like catches him, and he's like, "Hey, find, you know, you gotta, have, you gotta have a thousand marks levied for you." And Aegean's like, "I don't have that." And, and like, anybody
1: who's playing Aegean in the play, you have to do it with that voice.
0: Yeah, there's a rule. That's a rule. You have to. I don't know where I'm from. Um, but, so he goes searching and Antipolis of Syracuse is in Ephesus searching around um, and then and Antipolis of Ephesus who's a very well-respected merchant um, in Ephesus like is having some dealings with Balthazar and Angelo and All these, all these people, and everyone mistakes the twins for each other. You know, the servants get beat by uh, Adriana and and Antipolis of Ephesus and and Antipolis of Syracuse. And it's all these kind of mishaps happen. All these errors occur. Ah, so Uh
1: it's a wonder that the play is called Comedy of Errors, then. Oh, Shakespeare so simple and yet so complicated sometimes, am I right? Oh, God. So, Comedy of Errors is one of Shakespeare's earliest comedies. Uh, we were looking at before, and it's definitely between Two Gentlemen of Verona and the Comedy of Errors, as to which appears first in the canon. Um, but as it is earlier than most of the other plays, it's uh, different in structure than later plays uh, I've already talked about on this podcast, like The Tempest, where the meter is... Pretty much just a suggestion and little else. Uh, in *Comedy of Errors*, there's there's a lot more structure to it. There's a lot fewer irregularities and there's there's more rhyming. Is there not?
0: Oh yeah, there's a lot of like rhyming lines, shared couplets, um, and it's it's for his comedies. It's 87% verse, um, as opposed to majority being prose, like like *As You Like It* or anything mm. like that. This, so the meter is very important, and what's really nice with comedy is it kind of lends you to the operatives. Right. Um, which, you know, in comedy, sometimes finding comedic devices is hard enough, let alone trying to find it in a, like a Shakespearean play. So that, he gives a really nice roadmap from the grave. Uh,
1: which definitely makes it simpler, I guess, and easier to, um, easier to, to latch onto, probably, for actors than stuff like The Tempest. It's probably one of, it's more useful to an actor to have this kind of structure and this kind of regularity so that when something is broken, it definitely means a lot more than The Tempest, where if, if everything is special, then nothing is special, as we talked about in an earlier podcast. Uh, it's also Shakespeare's shortest comedy, by far. I had, there was a stat that I talked about once that uh, it barely... The entire play, The Comedy of Errors, as far as line count, barely exceeds Hamlet's individual line count in Hamlet. Uh, so it's it's pretty short. How long uh, has has it generally run for you when you've done productions?
0: Uh, let's see. Last Last summer... Um we did it uncut and it was a little under 2 hours like wow. just a, just a touch under 2 hours and we did it uncut no and straight through like we didn't even have an intermission we didn't give those poor people a break at all <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: really unusual for me especially like everybody in our society generally thinks of shakespeare plays as oh they're so long you know but comedy of errors Runs less than two hours, so if you see Comedy of Errors and you're like, "Oh, well, I don't like long Shakespeare plays," suck it up and go see Comedy of Errors. You'll be less less than two hours there.
0: And uh, it's so different from his other comedies too. Like, it's more farcical. So you you'll, there's like slapstick jokes, there's fart jokes. I mean, it's it's one of his most farcical plays. Um, so if if you if people are thinking that you know. Shakespeare's comedies will go completely over their head. This one, this one really is easily understood. It's fun to watch. Um,
1: there's all it's sorts relatable. of... relatable,
0: yeah. It's like it's Shakespeare's too, yeah. version of Family Guy. Or just- yeah! Compare yeah. <laughs> um, it um, to um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, because, like, Antipolis of Syracuse is like, what's going on? I'm really confused. Hey, Are you guys confused? Me too. Let's see how this plays out.
1: (laughs) It's fun to mention that Comedy of Errors isn't like most Shakespeare plays. It's not originally his plot. There's a Greek play called the Menekmi where Shakespeare basically steals the plot from. And then later, there's a musical uh, back in the 1940s or 1950s or something written called Boys of Syracuse, which is basically based on Comedy of Errors. So it's not a plot that is entirely unique. It appears in other forms as well. But as for the, the characters, there, there are two sets of twins, right? There's Antipholus of Syracuse and Ephesus, and then there's Dromeo of Syracuse and Ephesus. And I have seen productions where both Antipholi, I guess it would it would be, are played by the same actor and same with uh, Dromeo. And I've also seen productions where they're played by four actors total. So one actor for each Antiphilus and one actor for each Dromeo. What kind of effect does that have on the play, Park?
0: Well, I've only done it with four actors um, in their only parts. Um, If there's two actors, the end becomes really tricky Mm -hmm. um, because the end... There's all the summation, and then what, what I personally think is one of the most heartfelt moments of the play, when the, the two sets of twins see each other, and right. there's that beautiful heart realization of my missing piece is finally here. Um, because, I you know, in doing uh, this play so many times, I've read a lot about Twins and is twins that that do get separated at birth and grow up apart, and they have similar habits regardless um, so it's really kind of an interesting thing and um there's it's just a beautiful moment, so with two actors, you know it I think the end would become very very tricky and you know I had um,
1: so the production I saw with just two actors playing the four roles uh was at Great Lakes Theater where I worked in college and where uh David Anthony Smith who was on an earlier episode of this podcast uh has worked for a number of years now but it was it was a really good production of the play and the what happened at the end was they had basically what equated to two body doubles right and those body doubles came in and faced up stage in the moment where the twins saw each other so you got to see the actor that everybody recognized having that reaction, right? And you got to assume that the other actor was having a similar reaction and looked the exact same. So it wasn't by any means clean. And it was also kind of awkward when they came, the body doubles came out for the curtain call and were like, oh, guess what? We're just body doubles. Uh, but that was kind of how they made it work. And it was interesting. First of all, for having four different actors played, you, you pretty much, at least in a large scale production um like if it were a broadway or uh, sim- or a movie you would pretty much have to have twins playing the roles mm-hmm. especially viewing it um in close capacity i guess uh for or like if you're like right on the lip of the stage seeing it because the suspension of disbelief um much like th- one of the problems i've always found with 12th night is the suspension of dis- disbelief right seeing oh, yeah. sebastian and seeing viola and like, yeah, they look similar, but if somebody saw them both up close, they would know. They would know, oh, well, this one's a boy and this one's a girl, or at least this, these two aren't the same person. They look very similar, but they're not the same. So my question is, uh, other than costumes, how do you set it up in your production so that it's, um, it's palatable to the audience that people are mistaking these two very similar looking people for each other at a very close
0: range? So it's interesting in the production I'm in right now, um the Antipholis of Syracuse, played by john henry carter um he does a such a remarkable job um, he's an african American actor uh whereas I am not and so we have what we've done a lot is uh, observed each other's gestures and movements, so we can have enough sameness to that. And you know, without and our costumes obviously help. I mean, we're in these beautiful blue zoot suits, um, and they help. But we can't get over the fact that we're different, and mm-hmm. that's and that's cool. But we try to we like mirrored each other's. Um, little gestures and habitual things that we brought to the characters. Um, and especially in, like, moments of rage or threatening or having a little charm, we use the same gestures a lot, which is really fun.
1: And just to, to let the listeners know, Park, in addition to being an actor, is also a huge movement guy, um, which I always admired in graduate school because the the human mind, and like, picks up on, vision, on uh, body language almost more than it does the, the voice or facial expression. So having the, the body language uh, similar to each other, the, the human brain might pick up on that subconsciously more than we might think so that the audience can go, oh, well, if people are seeing these two people make the same gestures and act the same, then maybe it doesn't matter how exact they look Maybe people at that time just are in a world where they aren't paying that close attention or whatever it may be. You're leaving the audience to project their own reason why they might mistake each other and filling in the gaps with stuff like similar body language and similar height and and stuff like that. Am I right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, body language is a very universal language, Um, you know, because there's so many different languages out there but body language can tell a very distinct story. Right. Um, which is lovely.
1: So I guess we've established that there are challenges and uh, hills to overcome with either way you do it, right? With If you have the four actors, then you have to make it very, very clear to the audience that everybody is mistaking these similar-looking people for each other for very specific reasons. Whereas if you only have two actors... The ending scene becomes kind of like a tightrope walk slash dance of sorts where everything has to be choreographed on stage such that the audience doesn't realize that somebody is jumping in and playing somebody that's been there the entire play and keeping the face away from the audience is key and whatever. So different challenges with both versions. Both can be successful if you put the work into them, much like everything else in Shakespeare. (laughs) Um, The next thing I wanted to talk about, I guess, while we're on the subject of the twins, is the characters themselves. Um, And Tifolus, though they both look the same, are different characters in a way, right? You, You have to play them differently because they are two different people that have grown up under different circumstances. And while they may have the same mannerisms and certain things in common, just inherently by being twins, they are also different people. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, you know what? After playing both Antipholi, Antipholus of Syracuse has so much poetry. He has a a big heart of an artist in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the way he woos Luciana um, and the way he talks about His missing piece. um, There's a beautiful line uh, I, like a drop of water in an ocean, seeks another drop. It's such a distinct image. Right. And only he talks like that. Whereas Antipolis of Ephesus has a a very pragmatic side of his speech. Uh, You can, I really see why he's so successful in business. But he also. Yeah, you know, the way I play him, in a way, he has a little savagery um, to him, mainly for comedic effect, because um, right. I rage out pretty well. <laughs> but yeah, you know, he has a very pragmatic side of his language, which you know I never realized until dipping my toe into both uh, both minds and bodies.
1: And I guess that's how Shakespeare distinguishes them from each other in a way, isn't it? By giving them different ways of using language so that the, at least, in, on the, even the very basic level, the actors know, hey, these are two different people that speak in two different ways. I guess that's kind of um, also an effect of the juxtaposition of the two towns, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so what, like, juxtaposing those two areas from each other, what does that
0: tell us about those cities in the play? Well, you know, I remember, um, in grad school, Jack was talking about, you know, like one place is, is like the Mecca. It's the best. It's like a, it's like New York city. And that's kind of what I, um, link in with Ephesus. It's like this big Mecca. Everyone comes there for commerce. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. Whereas, like, Syracuse has a little bit of laid-backness to it, has a little bit more art and poetry, and, um, you know, it has a little, you know, left-coast kind of vibe. Okay. Um, And so, like, in my mind, that's kind of where the distinction is in a lot of ways. Cool. Cool.
1: Uh, and what about Dromeo? Like, obviously, the two Dromeos are, are also vastly different. What can you tell us about having viewed that character from from afar?
0: Oh man, Dromeo of Syracuse! I'm dying to play Dromeo of Syracuse. Um, Dromio of Syracuse, like he and he, uh, he and um, Antipholus of Syracuse, they have like this fellow traveler kind of vibe to their relationship, mm-hmm. um, where they can joke. Um, they, they have this whole, the whole bald argument is very fun. Uh, the Nell section where just ragging on this poor woman <laughs> and, and it's, it's fun. Like they have a lot of fun exchanges. Whereas Antipholus of Ephesus and Dromeo of Ephesus is definitely a little bit in that servant master, uh, area. Sure. Cool. Um, and me and my, my Dromeo of Ephesus, Chris Lemieux, who is one of the funniest men I've had the pleasure of working with, um, we have found really cool distinctions of Servant Master Ness, um, where if I grunt, he knows he's going to get a beating. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of fun, in, in, a, in a very comedy of menace sort of way.
1: So then, I guess the next thing I want to talk about... Uh, going into uh, scenes uh, rather than characters is the uh, Antiphilus of Syracuse, right? And Luciana, the, the bedroom scene, which yeah. you have done uh, for us in class before, but way back in grad school in uh, Jack Young's acting class. Oh, what, yeah. uh, what is useful for an actor to look at in that scene? And what are some of the traps they might fall into?
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because Shakespeare starts that scene almost like in a mid-conversation way. Like they're having a conversation in another room and they just happen to come into this, this other room and the audience is there. Because um, Luciana's speech, and she's saying all this, all this stuff at Antelope's and was Syracuse, and personally, taking all that in is, and learning about her mind is mm-hmm. what really, that's what geared up my Antiphilus of Syracuse. I was like, oh, she talks like me. Of course, I, I love this woman. Of course I do. Um, and in that scene in particular, they have a lot of shared couplets and shared language, which is, yeah, uh, that's a cool device. Right. It's beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, cause they can finish each other's, each other's sentences.
1: Yeah. Oh,
0: and it's, it's that whole cliche, like we finish each other's sentences, <laughs> do.
1: and it's. But so this is funny. like the original. They finish each other's sentences
0: four hundred years ago. Oh, and he, he has this one moment where he's like, "Call thyself sister," um, and he's like, "Thy sister's sister," and she goes, "That's my sister." No, it is thyself, <laughs> and and like she goes, "Ah, oh, you got me," and it's adorable. It's. Freaking adorable! Our our Luciana and and of Syracuse, um, Lily and John do such a spectacular job because they're so earnest and beautiful humans that that just comes to life on stage. Um, some some pitfalls to fall into is making it overtly sexual. Gotcha. If that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of the the pitfall I fell into from Romeo and Juliet scene (laughs) in grad school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just want to tell a
1: story real quick for everybody listening. Uh, So there is this the the bedroom scene, the morning after scene or whatever in Romeo and Juliet in graduate school. Um, Park and our good friend Jackie Alberto are doing Romeo and Juliet and while Park is saying something to Juliet he's slowly kissing down her, her face and her <laughs> chest and her belly button and then goes right into her nether regions and says a word while going blah, blah. <laughs> at the end Jack, Jack Young says something to the effect of you realize these kids are like 13 right and Farcos, oh and it was, oh, it was just wonderfully funny. And we, we got to make a whole bunch of funny
0: choices Bad. like
1: that in grad school. Bad choices.
0: Oh, just
1: fail boldly. <laughs> fail boldly. Uh, so the, I, I guess the next thing boldly. I want to move on to because we're running a little behind is okay. uh, the plot device, uh, that's especially prevalent in Comedy Bear is mistaken identity. And Shakespeare uses it in a lot of other plays, um, such as Twelfth Night as i mentioned earlier um, i don't know what other examples of uh, mistaken identity can you think of it
0: happens a lot right yeah i mean i mean you can even go as far as saying like orlando and rosalind yeah uh, yep. as you like it you know cuz that's that's all what baffled me too is like mm. what's up with that is orlando just blind or yeah. is he a little thick you know like that's always baffled me in that play um i just want in that opening scene for Orlando have glasses and then Charles, the wrestler breaks them in the wrestling match. And then at, at the very end, uh, when, uh, his brother comes in and has this like big speech, bring him a new pair of glasses, And he's like, Oh, finally, I see you. <laughs> like that's all it that bothered me. Um, Oh,
1: uh, All's Well That Ends Well kind of counts, too. Parolus, mistakes. Yep. I mean, obviously they're playing a prank on him, but it's mistaken identity still. And Absolutely. my point with mistaken identity is it creates humor because yeah. anytime somebody doesn't understand what's going on entirely on stage or two people understand something differently, it's, it's an opposition of what's expected to happen, and that's instant comedy,
0: you know? And it shows in the language, too, with the um, antithesis. Yeah. Um, and that's funny. Oh, it's funny. Yep. Um, so,
1: like, I guess when you, like, you're talking about antithesis as in when two people are disagreeing on something and somebody goes, well, but, but this. And the other person's like, well, no, sir, certainly you mean this. Yeah. And you could just see that they're totally not on the same page and that, or, or like when, I, I can't think of a perfect example right now, but there are instances when somebody's, somebody describing an event or describing a feeling or something and the other person's just like totally lost and mistakes it for something else and is like, wait, you mean to tell me this? And then operates under an assumption that is incorrect. Obviously, I'm being vague right now, but when somebody operates under false information, that is just a goldmine of comedy for that could be milked for scenes upon scenes
0: upon scenes. Oh, yeah. I mean... And even in, in tragedies, they have that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Lady Anne Richards scene is one that comes to mind where he's like, kill me, wait, kill me, wait. <laughs> and, and like, he's a funny man until he decides to kill kids.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, to sorry, so moving on, the next thing we're going to do on the podcast today, Park has been informed... Just a few moments ago that we will be playing a game, right? (laughs) And this game is titled, Oh, I am slain. Famous last words from the County Paris in Romeo and Juliet and other plays, I'm sure. I've seen this phrase more than once. And it's just so awkward for somebody to say, Oh, I am slain. Because if I was dying, those wouldn't be the last things I said. I wouldn't. It seems like it's more for the audience or more of a stage direction hint. But that's why I thought it was a wonderful title for this game. Oh, I am slain. Oh, I am slain. And in this game, Park Fetch will be given a series of characters in Shakespeare plays. And when I give the character's name, my good friend Park will have to tell me which character killed that character in the respective play. And not not, like, ordered them killed or not, like, saw them killed, but actually pulled the dagger, or or shot a gun, or whatever it may be in your crazy modernized version, all of you kids. So, Wait. the first name on this list is the Duke of Buckingham. Duke of Buckingham? Or Richard III? No! Yeah, yeah, see, that, that's where the trick comes in. Richard III oh. orders him killed, but who is the one that actually does the deed? I don't know. So I believe the answer is Tyrell. If I'm incorrect, I'm going to shoot myself.
0: You're right. You're right.
1: But I I thought I remembered this correctly and I forgot to look it up before the podcast. So we're going with Tyrell, unless one of you listeners tunes in and proves me otherwise. Yep, you're right. You're absolutely right. Welcome to Pith and Moment, where I make up the rules all the time and nobody can say anything about it. (laughs) Next name on this list, Rodrigo. Uh, Iago. That's right. One for two. So next on the list, we have Tybalt. Romeo. There That's we go. Psychopath. Next on this list is Prince Edward.
0: Um, Buckingham.
1: No, it's Richard III.
0: Really? He did the deed! Oh, I thought I thought he ordered Buckingham to do it. Well, this might be another thing where I'm wrong, so let's, uh... No, I think you're right. I I know he kills a few people. <laughs> Richard III is a madman. I really
1: should have looked all of these up before we did the podcast,
0: but I'll uh, I'll
1: look it up later. And if anybody proves me wrong, you get a tweet in your honor. <laughs> um. So the next one on this list, Patroclus. Hector. Uh, yes. Well played, Park. Um. Edmund. Uh. Edgar. That's right. Him. This boy knows his fights. That's what it is.
0: Yeah, that's it. I, I've seen all these scenes. Polonius. Mm, Polonius, Polonius, Polonius. Oh, Hamlet. I'm dumb. <laughs> there we go. Hotspur. Hal. Prince Hal. Macbeth. Macduff. desdemona Othello. Lady Macduff. Uh, uh, one of the murderers. Ugh. That's right. It's Richard. one of the murderers. Yep. It's not like actually murder- said in the scene whether it's the first
1: or the second murder, but it is definitely one of the murderers. Yeah. Right? And all right, I'm gonna go m- starting to mix the trickier ones with the really easy ones now. Okay. So Richard the Richmond. Yep. Ateneus. I don't know. Trick question. Titanius kills himself. Ah, no.
0: I... <laughs> Paris. Uh, Romeo, psychopath. That's right. <laughs> Henry the Fourth.
1: Old age. That's right. He dies <laughs> of natural causes. <laughs> Mark is smarter than the average man, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and the last one, just to end on a good note,
0: Hamlet. Oh, uh, Liarites does the deed, but that's right. He's, he's aided by Claudius and that jerk.
1: <laughs> oh, part what? That's that's twelve out of fifteen. Hey, that's pretty impressive. I didn't exactly count, but again, I make up all the rules, so we're going to go with 12 out of 15, unless somebody listens to this podcast and proves me otherwise. Yeah. So, that was fun. That was fun. Park is better than the average contestant on this show, we have learned. Um, the next thing I want to go into while we're coming towards the end of the podcast is a fun hypothetical that I've enjoyed doing on the last couple of podcasts, and today's topic is... What if Shakespeare had written in an anapestic tetrameter? And for those of you listening who don't specialize in types of English verse, anapestic tetrameter is unlike iambic pentameter, in which it's an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable five times. In an anapestic foot, it is an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable followed by another unstressed syllable. So three syllables per foot, tetrameter meaning four feet per line. Dr. Seuss, for example, often wrote an anapestic tetrameter. So I'm trying to think of an example of anapestic tetrameter.
0: Um, Any come to mind? Yeah. um, The night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. There we go. That poem is written in that style. Wait, is that dactylic or is that anapestic? That's anapestic.
1: How's not a creature? was. Yes, that is. You're right. Yeah, it's well, exactly. and, so, yeah. Cool. so basically, it's got that sing-songy feel to it, more than iambic pentameter, which feels closer to natural speech almost. Um, and because there are always two unstressed syllables in a row, the stressed syllable, I feel, is more emphasized. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I think so. So if Shakespeare had written all of his... Text in anapestic tetrameter rather than iambic pentameter, how might things be different? So the the first thing that comes to mind for me is that the text would have a more sing-songy feel. Like, for example, the comedies would feel more storybook, Mm -hmm. right? Like, for example, imagine, like, to be or not to be. We have to be or not to be, that is the question. Whereas we might, in anapestic tetrameter... Uh, get something along the lines of "to be thus or not to be thus" is a question of sorts, although that would be anapestic
0: pentameter. But you get yeah. you get what I mean. Uh, yeah. Um, and I I don't know. I think he wrote in iambic pentameter. One, it was just the the device at the time. Right. Uh, but I also think it is so close to our natural speech patterns and stuff like that. Um, that if, if, if you wrote in the anapestic style, I think it'd put people to sleep like much like a storybook would. Yeah. Um, because there'd be, the trap would be, everything would be stressed in a very similar way. Right. Um, so people wouldn't know what was special. Sure. Yeah. So yeah,
1: on the flip side, like, so there's, there's fewer stresses. So the stressed words become more important as opposed to the unstressed syllables. But the double-edged sword of that is that each stressed syllable stands out so much that it's difficult to distinguish one stressed syllable from the other. Therefore, uh, whereas in iambic pentameter, you can have five different stressed syllables, but it's very easy to make them each of differing importance or different vocal highlightedness. Yep. Yep. Which does in a sense give that sing song feel I was talking about earlier and perhaps lulls the audience to sleep because they're hearing a consistent pattern in the voice. Yeah. Um, one other thing that stands out to me is that because iambic pentameter is closer to how we speak and a tetrameter or tetrameter or whatever we want to call it is more removed and therefore gives a more feel, a feeling of ridiculousness more to what people are saying. So it would be harder to buy the tragedies. I feel like, like oh, yeah. Romeo and Juliet, we'd feel detached. Like the, one of the great things about Romeo and Juliet is at the end when everybody's sitting there, you really absorb the consequences of what the two families have done uh, to these two children and all of their other, of all the members of both houses and of the royalties house that have died during this process, right? Even Prince Edward loses Mercutio and and County Paris who are his kin. Um, And these kids on both sides of the family have died and, and Tybalt has died and all these characters have died. And you're really left to absorb at the end of it. This is the consequence of people being jerks to each other. Yep. And so if we have anapestic tetrameter, it, it puts it more at a distance, I feel like, because it's mm-hmm. further removed from human speech and the fact that we're hearing something sing-songy or, or lullaby-esque, it, it kind of detaches us from the events that we're supposed to
0: absorb at the end, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and, and there's something about that that can also, on, on, a, on the flip side of that, it can also lead to sentimentality, because we... We, as modern-day listeners, I think, associate that that type of sound with, like, Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one, you know, the one that always pulls at my heartstrings is, Oh, The Places You'll Go. And, you know, it's... To me, when I hear that kind of storybook side of language, mm-hmm. it pulls me into a very sentimental place. And, boy, that'd be hard. Just right. as a as an actor, that'd be just, oh, it's so hard not to fall into the, the rhythm and to have all the personalization and action-objective stuff that we need. Ah, oh, I'm, I'm glad he didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stressful yeah, enough. Yeah, I, I guess what we're saying is the main effect
1: is that, A, it adds to the comedy. Well, so overall, the effect is that it detaches us more from the, from the language and from the plot and from the events of the play, which in comedy may be useful to elicit laughs, but in tragedy has a negative effect in removing us from the events. So it's, it's difficult to personalize Shakespeare or allow the audience or give the audience a chance to personalize Shakespeare to themselves when it's more removed from the way that we speak as human beings. Yeah. Interesting hypothetical. Um, So, I guess we're running out of time right now, uh, and this has been a lot of fun, being able to catch up with you, buddy. Yeah. Um, And before we go, why don't you just tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and uh, how they can follow your work? Um,
0: You can get in touch with me um, on Facebook. I'm a pretty open dude on Facebook. Uh, It's Park Andrew Fetch. Um, You can uh, find me on Twitter, uh, Park A Fetch. Um, and he just tweeted me, so you can add, add me there. Um, and if you have any questions, you know, let me know. Um, I'm down at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival right now for nine months, so uh, I definitely will have some time on my hands. <laughs>
1: cool. And everybody
0: listening, that's Park a fetch.
1: Fetch does not have a T; it is F-E-C-H. So go out and find Park on Twitter and on Facebook and. If his uh, tour with the Alabama Shakespeare Festival is in town, please go see him in the Comedy of Errors, which is running for about the next nine months. For me, I'm Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City. You can follow me on Twitter, NYShakesGuy, Instagram, NYShakesGuy, Facebook, NYShakesGuy, or view my videos on YouTube, Kyle Downing, parentheses, NYShakesGuy. And of course, for more free tips, hints, and material suggestions from all 37 of Shakespeare's plays, you can visit my website, www.kyledowning.com slash Shakespeare. I'm Kyle Downing for Park Fetch. Thanks for listening, everyone, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.